This is Memorial Day week, and uh, on my podcast, Alex Garrett Podcasting, I want to really cover stories that you may not have even heard about our service members and my next guest, David Allen Arnold, uh, who I'm calling from a McDonald's in the Bronx because I just was at Yankee Stadium. You know, it's amazing that podcasting can travel anywhere, isn't it, David? Uh, I love the technology. So we're able to record things to tape a call. Maybe they'll sponsor me one day. Who knows? Anyway, uh, let me ask you about this because you're, as I promised you, I would start reading the book, and I have. Um, and let me tell you, the story about you filming service members, military members, helping Katrina, uh, you know, in the rescue effort, helping in the rescue effort, is really tremendous. And I thought to kick off Memorial Day week, your story would be a great one to tell. Okay, sure. Um, well, I am a helicopter cameraman, and so there are many stories in my book, Help From Above, about flying around the world for various TV shows and movies and filming things from the air. Um, I got a call about two weeks after Hurricane Katrina and I was asked to go and fly in the only news helicopter that had permission to fly over the flooding city of New Orleans. And uh, it was uh, the best way I could describe the scene is it's like that movie, I Am Legend. It's just the city that uh, is full of water and emptied of people. It did have a definitely day after tomorrow feel, but in your, you know, work, you get to do these special opportunities. So am I right to say that you talk about being on live TV, filming all of this uh, on the ground? What was that like? Um, well, it was um, it was breathtaking because this was a major American city that had been completely flooded. And uh, it was, when you mentioned the military, um, this kind of becomes a fake news uh, issue because the news media at the time, for political reasons, they were trying to uh, portray this image of that the, the federal government, for example, wasn't doing the right things uh, to help people in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And... What I saw was the absolute opposite. What I saw was that of the thousands and thousands of people uh, who were escaping the flooding city, uh, thousands of them were being lifted off their roofs by uh, federal and military helicopters. So the Coast Guard was there, the Navy was there, the Air Force was there, the Army was there. And um, it was the the whole city of New Orleans was a basically a hornet's nest of helicopters from the U.S. government that was going literally door by door, street by street, and uh, going through flooded homes and looking for people, picking them up with the helicopters, and taking them to higher ground. David, I've got to ask: Did the government have a certain airspace that the media helicopters, media planes could film, or were you guys sort of carte blanche to cover it as you, you had to? 
Well, the airspace had been closed, so no one could fly through it. The only people that were allowed to fly there were the uh, military and uh, first responders. So, uh, and the air was full of them, flying in all directions. Uh, the military has very fast, very powerful helicopters, and they were just zipping. They were rocketing in all directions. Any Blackhawks? Uh, I have to ask you, because I know Blackhawks are a very prominent uh, military helicopter. Yeah, pro- probably over 100 Blackhawks. There were Chinooks. There were just Hueys, every kind of of helicopter, uh, especially military, that you can imagine, was flying over the city and searching for people, pulling them out of the flooded city and carrying them to higher ground. In your experience as a cinematographer, Emmy-winning, by the way, uh, does your respect for those in the military that can do those operations uh, grow? I mean, because of your own experience, do you find even more admiration for those? Because you talk a lot about how your own colleagues could actually die in a helicopter crash. So when you see these military exercises, how impressed are you? And then when you hear about the crashes, um, what are your thoughts on those as well? Well, I I love what the military did to rescue thousands and thousands of people um, from the uh, flooded city of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And um, and like I said, it, it was kind of sobering because if you turned on CNN, for example, you would just see one story after another about how the president wasn't doing the right things, the federal government was failing. And yet here I, I look out the window of my helicopter and I just see thousands of people being rescued by the uh, the U.S. government and the military. Uh, and, and so it, it was... Uh, it was definitely something that made me appreciate. You know, we know we have this massive military force of people who risk their lives to protect us, but it was uh, really uh, spectacular to witness them uh, just setting everything aside and going straight to work, pitching in. There were no rules for what they did in New Orleans. Um, in fact, uh, I saw a Coast Guard guy say something to the effect that we – we threw out our rule book to get this done. And they just did. They said no to their efforts, didn't they? What's that? Someone said no to their rescue efforts. Like a guy, a man that you write about actually didn't want to be taken out of his home. What was that about? Yeah, there, there was one guy uh, that we found. And so we, uh, we have a AWACS plane flying over the city of New Orleans. That's, that's who controls the airspace. So uh, we contacted them and said, hey, there's a guy in the street here. He's rescued. So a military helicopter swooped in, lowered a a service member on a cable to help rescue the guy. And so so this now uh, military guy is walking through these these, uh, disgusting floodwaters. And uh, he waves up to his helicopter. This, This guy that they had found did not want to be rescued. So they said, okay. So they, they packed up and, and went on to find people who did want to be rescued. But yeah, that, that guy was going to stay at, at his neighborhood or, or his home no matter what. And uh, <laughs> so that's what he chose to do. David, I feel like you wrote about this story because you respect the military. And can we just be honest that, that the respect for the military 
is either seasonal during Memorial Day and Veterans Day or not even existent nowadays. Do you find both of those the case? Um, yeah, honestly, definitely in the media. <clears throat> I think the media is uh, <clears throat> has become a really, really negative force in our culture. And I think that they spend uh, way too much of their time fault-finding and uh, criticizing people who, uh, in the case of first responders, people who answer 911 calls. The media literally probably does sometimes 100,000 stories a year about how terrible the police are. And yet every single police officer, uh, when they go to work, they commit to <clears throat> answering our 911 calls. And that's a really dangerous thing to do. Um, and vice, vice versa in the military, um, you know, these are people who are sworn to protect our country. And that takes incredible risk and sacrifice, uh, just to do their jobs, you know, far away from home sometimes. Absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, it, it just shocks me how the military, uh, is kind of taken for granted and just criticized by our media. But the reality is, it's definitely <clears throat> something that I appreciate. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, and I never take it for granted. I, I think we are very blessed to have people who sacrifice so much to keep us safe and take so many risks to keep us safe. Uh, I admire it and I appreciate it. And uh, it's definitely something that should be celebrated more, you know, in our culture. No. Do you have family that uh, served in the military? Uh, my dad was in the National Guard in Vietnam. Wow. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> the Vietnam uh, veterans are undoubtedly the most troubled. I, can I tell you a quick story? So I was rollerblading yeah. along 14th Street, or I think it was 23rd, and a veteran of Vietnam vet came up to me and said, you know, I really admire, you know, the way you roll on one leg. And, this and, this. and I said, thank you for your service. And I, he said, don't thank me. I killed innocent people was basically what his gist was. And I was like, wow, Vietnam vets have the most troubled PTSD that we know of. Yeah, it's, uh, they definitely um, were not appreciated and were really crapped upon by, by some of the people in our country when they came home. And uh, that's that's a shame. I'm I'm sorry to hear all that. <clears throat> well, let me ask you this: Have you had any other partnerships with the military? Because you do do the Super Bowl, you do do uh, different things where there might be a military flyover. So, is there a lot of coordination for you to organize those for the TV side uh, alongside the military? Yeah, there's a lot of coordination. So, as part of events like baseball games, football games, we will very often work with. Uh, fighter jet pilots, um, you know, Top Gun is in the the uh, theaters now, and sometimes those kind of people will show up at a baseball game, fly their jets over, you know, afterburner, and uh, <laughs> when the Rockets' red glare happens in the national anthem, uh, they give the the crowd a big thrill, and it's it's definitely a very awe-inspiring celebration of our country and the people who sacrificed to protect us. And um, so we we spend a lot of time working with them to coordinate those 
uh, flybys so that my helicopter camera is in the perfect spot to either catch them zipping by the crowd in the stadium or if it's the Army Golden Knights, for example, we want to be able to see them coming out of their door of their jump plane and uh, dropping into the stadium. Well, I don't know if you've followed the Army Golden Knights this far back, but I actually had Dana Bowman on who lost his legs in a parachuting training incident. I don't know if you know that name or not, but he comes to mind when you mention that and how, uh, you know, what a job that is for the parachuters to, to jump into any stadium. Well, yeah, we have a whole uh, we have a whole segment of our military that jumps out of perfectly good airplanes, and uh, it's amazing to watch what they do. But it's not without risk. Now, I got to tell my audience, David was a little nervous because he's like, "Well, I never served in the military." I said, "Yeah, but you have a perspective that I feel that we don't hear enough about in the Memorial Day uh, activities, which is what's going on now and how." the military is in the community. I think that's what should be a real uh, focus now because we all talk about, rightly so, those who serve abroad and those who lost their lives abroad, and we need to honor those. But not much is brought about those of the community, right? I mean, and even COVID has shown that the military has a presence here during the vaccine distribution. Whether you like the vaccine or not, the military has been here to support that effort as well. Yeah, it, it's a, uh, you know, our military is a is a powerful asset to our country. And um, it's always nice to see when they uh, pitch in and uh, help civilians out to get through a thing like the COVID vaccine. All right. I've got help from above right next to me in my, uh, on my table at McDonald's here, Garrett on the go, literally with David Allen Arnold. I got to ask you, because last time we talked, I did mention I read through the book as much as I could, and uh, so many things about your story are eye-popping. I mean, I could go through a list of them, but because of Super Bowl, I want to ask about your dog, because I know that uh, you had a very aggressive dog. <laughs> no people yeah. away from the Memorial Day, but I want to get back to you for a minute. Um, but she kept you company everywhere, didn't she? Yeah, switch the dog. Uh, I found Switch running in traffic on the main streets of Los Angeles, and it took me three hours to get a leash on her. And she was unapproachable, she was aggressive, and she was starving, and she uh, had a collar that had uh, she had outgrown, so the collar was strangling her. And um, and that that really changed my life. I didn't know how I was going to make it work, but I just knew I had to get this dog off the street. So that was the only thing I focused on. And once I got her off the street, I realized, okay, I have a dog that doesn't like anybody. So how am I going to keep a dog that, that um, is aggressive? And I had to go to school on it, read books about it. And it was an incredible challenge. I was a single guy traveling the world. So it was hard for me to even keep a house plant. But I had to figure out how to uh, manage this crazy dog. And so uh, that that part of my life probably makes no sense to thinking people. But it was uh, it was a time where I followed my heart instead of my head. And 
And I went and I bought a small travel trailer that I could use to travel and do my helicopter shoots and have the dog inside. It was a place where she could stay. And it was a safe place for the dog to travel with me. And uh, I I've still just, have that trailer. <laughs> yeah, and that effort is uh, is really important to really help from above. And I know you have what lies above the clouds, and we got to talk about that book too. But I- I'm getting here one book at a time here, David, all right? So just give me a moment to see <laughs> um, because you've got a fascinating story. And the, the, the byline, how I went from sweeping the floor to painting the sky, the very humbling beginning you had, and yet here you are soaring all over the place. Um, I got to ask you because we did talk about the Boston Marathon, the NFL Draft. Give us a recap of how all of that went and, hey, how the reaction to Deadliest Season's new season went. How how's that all how'd that all shape up uh, for you, David? Well, Deadliest Catch, uh, I have been the helicopter cameraman of Deadliest Catch for all 18 seasons. So this is our 18th year. It's now on Discovery. And this year the fishermen have an extra special challenge because – uh, king crab season was closed by regulators. And so they're all trying to figure out how, what they can fish for. And, uh, in the meantime, the Bering Sea is trying to kill them. It's, it's just a very dangerous environment. Uh, that water is so cold, it'll, it'll kill you in a couple of minutes, um, if you fall into it, for example. And, uh, so it's a really spectacular, dangerous environment. And um, the people I talk to like the new season. Uh, it's definitely really fascinating to watch these old fishermen, you know, deal with a new challenge, which is how to how to make a living when you're not allowed to fish. And you could die. I mean, that's kind of a premise of the show. And um, it, it just seems like your camera work really enhances Oh, doesn't it? It's, uh, well, the helicopter camera... It's a great way to see the whole scene, to see the the big steel boats that are 100 or 128 feet long crashing through these giant Bering Sea storm waves while these guys are trying to crawl around on deck. They're moving 700-pound pots. The, the waves are crashing over the rails of the boat, moving stuff. It's, uh, it's just a heck of an adventure in the helicopter that we use to hover next to these boats, my camera can see all of that at once. And um, so it's a very important tool for the show to actually show what these men do in the Bering Sea. And um, it's uh, it's an awesome spectacle. All right, you talk about uh, helicopter cameras, and I know that at the time when you were younger, that was just amazing to you, awe-inspiring, because, wow, a camera can attach to a helicopter. But, David, let's be honest, technology is going way beyond that now. We've got drones. So two questions. Technologically, those who want to break into this business as a cinematographer but say, well, what are are drones taking my job? Is that a thing? And also, um, for the human, you know, effort behind all of these camera works, what technologically, what technological evolutions have you been seeing working with, um, even right up to 2022? Well, uh, I love drones. I have been using drones uh, since before they were available to the public. So before anyone had heard the name DJI, I was buying uh, 
drones and attaching little gimbals and a GoPro onto them. And I used them uh, in the case of a missing person who had disappeared in the National Forest. And his family lived far away, so I would take this drone that I had basically pieced together from things I had bought on the Internet. And it was battery-powered, and I would take it out, and I would fly it over the wilderness. And then uh, the missing man's family could then use the memory card from the drone to search with their own eyes because it's a really heartbreaking distress of not knowing where your loved one is. And so it was some comfort that this drone could travel very rapidly over the mountainous terrain of this forest, which would take you days to get to on foot. And it could be there in in minutes and look down with this little GoPro. And then it allowed me to search for the missing man, but also his family could see the footage and look for themselves and satisfy themselves. Okay, I've I've looked in this area. I don't see any uh, sign of our son. And um, and so uh, that was years before you could just go to Costco or Best Buy and and buy one. Uh, <laughs> so you did things and, before it was in style, basically, is what you're telling me. Yeah, they they really and weren't available. Not, they really weren't guess, available to the general public. You're not intimidated by it because it still needs human uh, operation. Is that right? Well, I I don't really think of, I don't look at things like that and think, well, what's in it for me? Of course, I want to do my job and make money, but um, I look at things like that and say, well, how can this be used to help people? And so in my case, it was a powerful tool to do something that couldn't be done any other way. Um, I did bring a helicopter out to search for, for this missing person. But when I was in the woods by myself, this was the only tool that I could use to search a lot of terrain to see if we could find some clue to this person who had disappeared. And his family was was heartbroken and upset and worried. And uh, so I looked at it as like, how how can this technology be used to help people? And um, so I love drones. Um, I think that... Uh, for kids today who want to get into cinematography, you know, you can buy a drone for the cost of a GoPro, and it's a good drone. And oh. so... Well, that's relatively inexpensive compared to what it was back in the day, right? Oh, it, it cost me, when we were looking for that person who disappeared, it cost me probably $2,000 minimum, just in not only to build the drones, but also when they would crash. Uh, and I would damage or destroy parts and then have to build another one or repair it. Uh, it was just this crazy cycle of me uh, hiking into the forest, flying the drone, crashing the drone, trying to then dig through the forest to find the drone, <laughs> bring it home, get the memory card out, look at the footage, see if there was any sign of this missing man, and um, and then I'd have to uh, order more parts. <laughs> So it was an expensive process, and today you can buy all of that for between, I'd say, probably 400 bucks. You can wow. get a uh, really, really powerful, sophisticated drone with an incredible 4K camera. Uh, and you know, and so for I, I think today 
if someone disappears in the woods, like that's just what you do. You just you you get all your friends and have them bring their drones, and then you guys can search on foot, and then you can also fly the drones to look in areas that you can't reach by foot, and um, and that's a really positive, powerful thing. So I I love the technology, um, and uh, I think this is just a great time to be alive. On that note, I'm so glad you mentioned that word alive because another thing I learned about you is you avoided death every which way possible. Can you talk about that? And yeah. um, obviously with the, with the title of your book, Help From Above, you believe that God's gotten you through the most drastic, the most um, nearly fatal accident, if you will, in the helicopter. It's the only explanation that makes any sense. Um, I started writing books because of a problem that I discovered at a school bus stop. So I found criminal activity at a school bus stop, and I fought for years to get the bad guys away from the kids. And uh, I, that's how I learned about corruption. And oops, hang on. that's how I learned about corruption and organized crime. Uh, sorry, my little dog just just went nuts. Um, so it's that's, all good. That's part of the radio world, podcast world. <laughs> We're live. So, so that's how I learned about corruption, organized crime. Was I? I couldn't get the criminals away from the kids at the school bus stop. And so, uh, I I wrote a book about the bus stop. And someone read the book and said, "Well, this is okay, but first you have to write a book about who you are and what you do." So I said, okay. I went back and I wrote Help From Above. And that's the story of my life and career, what I do for a living. And um, originally, because it was about the school bus stop, the series of books was called Worth Fighting For because that's what I believe. I believe that children should be safe at a school bus stop. And uh, it's worth fighting for. And uh, so that was the title of the book series. And... Uh, my friend Charles Richardi, who was in the book, he read it and he said, okay, uh, this is good, but I'm sorry to tell you this. Um, you need to call this book Help From Above. And I think what he was alluding to was just the fact that my story, my book, was really the story of me continuously getting myself into trouble and in danger. And really having David, no you also you have a self way to escape way of writing like you're very self deprecating so does i wouldn't say thinking part of yourself, but does that self deprecation keep you humble? does it keep you reminded that yeah, I'm not always perfect, but I'm gonna get there one day or i'm gonna I'm thanking God I'm alive right now, like I feel you use that as a tool to keep yourself humble despite being this emmy award winning cameraman. Well, uh, it keeps me honest. I I mentioned my friend Charles Richardi, uh, and he is a documentary producer who comes very much into the story in the second book, What Lies Above the Clouds. Um, he was looking at my manuscript for uh, Help From Above, and he said, okay, this is all right, but... Um, this is a story of your life. He goes, but I, I think 
you need to start the book with one of your stories. And I thought, oh, okay, uh, well, I can tell the story of, for example, the time I almost didn't come home from Peru. And I was actually in the newspaper. The National Newspaper of Peru said that their Peruvian national heritage had been destroyed by a helicopter. <laughs> and that was me in the helicopter. And it seemed like was, everybody abandoned you during that time. I mean, that's how you wrote it. Like the producer left, everybody kind of left, and they just left yeah. you to take care of the freaking mess. It was just me and the pilot who were who were left in Nazca, Peru, and uh, the situation really spiraled out of control, and to such a, an extent that we were on the front page of the national newspaper, and not in a good way. We were. It was basically being revealed to the public that the national historical treasures of Peru had been de- destroyed by a helicopter shooting a Korean cell phone commercial, though that was us. And at that moment, I can tell you, I spoke to the lady at the the U.S. Embassy, and she said something I'll never forget. Uh, She goes, uh, do you know how much trouble you're in? (laughs) And I said, yeah, that's why I called you guys. And and she said, well, there's nothing we can do for you. All we can do is document whatever they do to you. <laughs> and, well, uh, and isn't that what, what's going on now? Is that our our United States is saying, well, we can't really help you, Ukraine, but we're going to document everything that goes wrong for you. I feel like there's a parallel there in, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, in a sense. I mean, I'm I'm not. My situation wasn't as bad as an entire country being invaded, but uh, I definitely had you know they were hunting me and uh <laughs> and the the government was corrupt in the sense of the whole story was fabricated we hadn't done anything to damage the national heritage of peru but that's not what people were getting told and so the corruption was as dangerous as anything else they'll they'll lock you in prison i would say for the rest of your life but you probably wouldn't survive that long <laughs> in one of those jails. Wow. No, and, so that's why you having connections was huge and a blessing from God. Well, I, I that's just it. I didn't have connections. Um, the connections I had in, in the case of the government were the U.S. Embassy, and they said, we can't do a thing for you. You are screwed. And uh, <laughs> so that was a sobering phone call. Uh, the people that I worked for were trying desperately to, to do anything to get me out of the country and out of harm's way, but we were we were all a bit powerless because it was really up to the authorities what happens next. And David, I'll, I'll go for it, sorry. And, and so that was one of those situations where I had done everything wrong, I had missed every opportunity to save myself, and I just had put myself in this predicament. So as I'm writing the book, I said, oh, if I'm going to be honest about Peru, I have to admit that this was mostly my fault. Like the only reason I'm stuck there and public enemy number one in a country where I don't speak the language is because I missed multiple opportunities to save myself. And like everyone else who had fled the country, 
who was working on the commercial. And uh, I was uh, the only one left in Peru with the pilot uh, and, and that part of Peru. And, uh, and we were stuck there waiting to hear if we were going to prison or not. And, um, and so I had done everything wrong. And I had no expectation that I would escape. But definitely someone miraculously came to my aid and set everything right and sent me back to the United States. And most of the stories in my book end that way. And so I, I think that's why Charles wanted to call the book Help From Above. And uh, so that, that became the name of the series of books. It's called Help From Above. David, I've got to ask you now real quickly before I, you know, we, we wrap up here. You take accountability for your actions. And unfortunately, with Uvalde, Texas yesterday, 19 kids being gunned down at school, no one's taking accountability and investigating all these threats before they happen. And I feel like maybe your story, Game of the Universe, once, once again, can inspire the world to just take accountability. If you truly... Uh, see an issue, take, uh, you know, control of it. Don't just let it get to the point of 19 kids dead. Well, um, I can't pass judgment on that situation. I, I'm not really up to speed on exactly uh, everything that went wrong. But I personally, in my neighborhood, I've seen that exact same thing. I've seen where uh, there's a dangerous, in this case, an organized crime ring, that's allowed to operate at a school bus stop. And I've, I argued with them. I protested them publicly. Uh, I spoke to the media. I spoke to all of the government officials who are supposed to enforce the laws and protect the kids, and it just wasn't happening. And this went on for years. And in 2014, we found the body of one of their victims that was hidden behind their building and um, this organized crime ring. And, and so I witnessed firsthand how the, our government can, can be so corrupt that they simply refuse to do the right thing to protect the kids. And so it's heartbreaking to witness, but it's just a reminder. Uh, and I, I keep asking people when they talk about tragedies like the one in Texas, I keep asking people, well, who says the government should be in charge of education? Like, are we all insane? The government that fails terribly at even basic tasks, the, the United States government can't even balance their checkbook. They, every year they spend almost twice as much money as they have, and they can't fix that. They can't stop themselves from doing it, and yet we want them to be in charge of our children's education. You, it, this is like a, a Saturday Night Live skit. Like, like this is how not to educate children is to put the government in charge of it. And that goes for safety too. I, I find, you know, all the gun control advocates are, are screaming from the rafters that we need more laws. And I understand. They're like, why does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening? And I think that's a fair question to ask of the government itself. You know, if if we must spend, if we must send our children to government monopoly schools, then I think we have to start asking, why is that? And why is that that every year the kids still aren't safe in the schools? Homeschooling is going to become a really big thing here in the next yeah. couple of years. But David, 
always always love your time. Love having you on. And uh, we will definitely catch up as I keep reading this book. I, I, I love what you're writing. And um, keep speaking up, okay? We, we love having you on the show. Uh, Alex, I love you too. Uh, you keep up the great work. I look forward to each and every social media post that you put, a video or a picture of you navigating the streets of New York. And uh, I think you're a great inspiration. And thank you very much for taking the time to put me on your show. One more question for David Allen Arnold before I hit, hit home. Uh, you're not responsible for the 1,121 downloads that this podcast has received in two years from Los Angeles. You didn't single-handedly do that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> if if I can, I will do it. I, I just think that uh, you are such a great inspiration. I love for people to learn about you and see all the amazing work that you're doing, uh, you know, your challenges. The, the fact that you still confront life head on and go full speed ahead, re- regardless of your physical condition, uh, I think is an amazing story and it's just so uplifting. So yeah, I, I would definitely send every listener I can to your podcast. Well, and I would send your, uh, you, people to your work as well, man. And, and, uh, David Allen Arnold, airborne camera on Instagram, worth the follow. Have a great night, David. Thanks again. Yeah, always great to talk to you. Thank you. God bless. Take care. Thank Thank you. you. uh, Yeah, now we're done. That was perfect, man. (laughs) As I currently leave the McDonald's in the Bronx. So there you go. Have a great night, David, and thanks for uh, flexing me today, and and, uh, we're going to have you back on for sure. I love it. That'd be great. Anytime. Take care. I'm out here. We'll talk to you very soon on this podcast. Thank you.